0: We've got to be smart and sophisticated about spotting the lies, about educating our neighbors how to spot the lies, and about living our values in these multiracial coalitions that we're using to build power, right? It's really about the power of the many. And in this diverse nation, that many has to include someone from every walk of life.
1: Welcome to How We Win.
2: All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We don't agonize, we organize. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. Today,
1: we are watching as Congress is on the verge of passing historic investments in our country, all while trying to avoid a government shutdown.
2: Busy week. Uh, Joining us for our interview is Heather McGee, a progressive advocate and writer. We're gonna talk about her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Uh, She's got some interesting things to say about why some people in this country keep insisting on voting against their own best interests.
1: Right, and then it's a super big, awesome episode. We have Joanne Smith from Women's March Action joining Mm -hmm. us for our Reasons for Hope. I'm Steve Pearson.
2: And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How how We win. Win.
1: A week we have in store for us Mariah it's uh is it finally Nervous. infrastructure
2: week <laughs> it's it's uh c-r-b-i-f-r-p week continuing resolution bipartisan infrastructure <laughs> re- reconciliation package week uh man the democrats are going to work overtime this week
1: Yeah. uh, You know, Pelosi was going to put it for a vote um, earlier, doesn't have the votes that she needs, uh, and is now saying she is going to put it for a vote tomorrow on Thursday. Um, We will see if that happens. There's obvious resistance in the Senate, including from some of our own party members. Um, But this is – this is a swing for the fences, uh, really historic, first time in our history, even bigger than the New Deal kind of investment mm-hmm. in our country. And, um, and I, this is the cornerstone of Biden's agenda and the Democratic Party's agenda. Uh, while we have the opportunity to do it, I have to believe that Pelosi and the Democrats will get this done, despite all of the talk uh, You know that media loves to pull up the dims and disarray. <laughs> um, Dems are not in disarray. Dems are on the same page that this all needs to get passed, and they want to pass it. It's the form that it takes and the, the timing that is. Pe- people are working out right now, and um, but I just I I think that missing the opportunity to pass this legislation is a disaster, and every Democrat knows that.
2: Yeah, there, just to remind people, there are three key things that, that Democrats want to do this week. Um, they want to pass a continuing resolution and increase the debt, raise the debt ceiling. Uh, so this would fund the government until December. It would prevent the government from shutting down on Friday and furloughing a ton of people as we continue to struggle um, with the pandemic you know, the Republicans have already um, pushed back against this. I pulled this um, quote from Heather Cox Richardson's email that she does every day. The Republicans are taking the country hostage to undercut the Democrats. That is the only reason. Um, And this hyper-partisan thing that they're doing um, is really putting the country in danger. There's the bipartisan infrastructure deal uh, bill. And then there is that 10- um, year three and a half billion dollar uh, package that we're referring to as Build Back Better. Um, and that has all the incredible programs that you were just referring to that takes us to, you know beyond New Deal levels of um, economic resources and empowerment uh, and for people.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, and you're absolutely right about the Republicans. They, uh, it's horrific their lack of interest in actually helping people, and their all-out power grab and uh, and efforts just to undermine Democrats at any cost to to citizens, and and just to try to hold on to their um, what I hope is fleeting power. So. We talk about it uh, even more uh, with this incredible interview we have with Heather McGee and uh, and the roots of our economic policy that are rooted in racism and zero-sum thinking uh, that has permeated um, our country's institutions and has made people vote against their best interest. And that that plays right into what we're seeing right now. So uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear hear the interview, it's it's an incredible conversation. And um, and then the, the call to action uh, that I'll say right now is to call your reps and, mm-hmm. and make sure that they know you want this passed. Um, and they, they need all the calls and all the support they can have, whether they support it or not. Uh, our voices need to be heard on this, and, and they need to be heard right now.
2: Uh, yeah, don't put this call to action off. Uh, ideally, you're doing it by Thursday, so... Um, <laughs> right. Listen, listen, like stay on the podcast, listen to the interview and then do it. If you're
1: willing to call, I'm open to you pausing the podcast and making oh. that call and then rejoining us.
2: Okay. Um, maybe, maybe the interview is your treat for making the call, leaving the voicemail. <laughs> there you go.
1: You're not allowed to listen to the interview until you make this call. That's the new rule. <laughs>
2: uh let's see um oh my gosh what is this i'm squinting at the notes election <laughs> audit
1: we had uh, to talk about it. I know it happened. Like brother. like some of the best stuff happens right after we release the podcast. And then by the time we roll around to the week, it feels like sort of old news. But we have to talk because I wanted to just play like a 30-second a laugh track about the results of the Cyber Ninjas <laughs> Arizona election audit that found um, more votes for oh, Biden God. and less for Trump. Um, but uh, but it's it's really frightening the response to it um, and not— Surprising but frightening that you know, Trump would then go on to a rally in Georgia saying that this – the results of the audit showed uh, fraud and, um, and how illegitimate the election was and that he actually won Arizona. I mean, just no. outright lying because he knows that his base isn't going to look at the facts. They're just going to believe what he says. And, uh, and then in response to this, you know, farce of a, you know, which costs so much money and, and spoiled all of these voting machines that the Arizona um, secretary of state can no longer use because they've now been sullied by the cyber ninjas. Um, your state of Texas is now calling for an audit in elections that Trump actually won. So um, it, it doesn't make any sense. Until you really realize that it makes all the sense in the world if you're trying to delegitimize our very democracy and uh, and delegitimize elections in general and cast doubt in the process, which is uh, the game that Republicans are playing right now. Um, so cyber ninjas may be coming to your town, Mariah.
2: Well... <laughs> They're not, they're not doing, they're not investigating in Travis County where, where Austin is. Right. Um, but the, like, this is in response, like Trump, Trump says, oh, they should look into into what happened in Texas. And the governor here is like, okay, like we don't, like there's nothing else going on. There's nothing else for anybody to do. There's nothing to spend money on here. It's so aggravating and it but but, you know, it's always the same reminder that we don't hear from um, unless you're watching Newsmax or something. We're not hearing from Trump anymore that often, but he's still pulling the strings. So
1: it's terrifying how much in control he still is of the Republican Party. You would think after everything, after inciting an insurrection on the Capitol, that Reasonable-minded people would want to distance themselves from from that former uh, person, uh, but no, he's still uh, he's still very much the front runner, um, and uh, I hope and pray uh, that the Republicans will all go down with this uh, vile sinking ship, um, but. Uh, they are, they are pulling out all the stops to disenfranchise voters and, and delegitimize elections. And, and so we need to fight back with everything. we need to pass some voting rights legislation at the federal level, which means we need to abolish reform, carve out whatever you want to call it, the filibuster.
2: Hmm. Just saying. Um, that left a sour taste in my mouth. <laughs> um, now we're going to have a, a palate cleanser and talk about – The Hero of the Week. I love your choice for Hero of the Week. And this is such a big deal that... We're gonna add it. We're gonna have to do another podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So our friend Scott Foreman is my choice for hero of the week this week, and um, it's a bit of a tease to a special mini pod that we're going to release on Friday, and we're excited for everyone to hear that. So I can't talk about everything because we're going to release it on Friday. But um, Scott Foreman, of course, is the founder of Vote Forward, and um, I just love his story because it is such a great example of someone from outside of politics who had a simple idea for how to reach voters, and, uh, and it was by writing letters. And he tested it out and wrote letters himself, built this organization, and now all of you, our listeners and volunteers all over the country, have jumped in and been writing letters to voters, and we have uh, the data back on how those letters have worked. And um, we're going to share all of that on Friday with Scott. But it's, it's so awesome for someone to be able to step up, get out of their comfort zone, try something new, and really make a major impact on our elections and on our democracy. And that's what Scott's done. So um, he's our Hero of the Week, and I can't wait for everyone to hear our announcement of the results of those studies on Friday.
2: Fantastic. That's that's so important. I always encourage people who are eager to volunteer to make sure that they are volunteering in a way that's impactful. And um, backing his work up with numbers is is really smart. In addition to listening to that, there is plenty for volunteers to do. And we're going to talk about it in the to-do list.
1: We have a lot to do this week, uh, starting, of course, the election is already underway. Early voting has started in Virginia. Go to swingleft.org Virginia. We're talking about this every week. We're going to have some uh, delegates on in these last few weeks uh, to talk about the great work that they're doing. Um, so we need you to volunteer. We need you to make calls. If you're around Virginia, you can go knock on some doors. Remember that. That's super fun and effective. Write letters still, donate some money. Go to swingleft.org slash Virginia. We're on the home stretch here and we need to hold on to that trifecta.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we talked about calling your representatives and encouraging them to pass the Build Back Better Act, which uh, even if you know that they are in support of it, it's helpful for you to call them and, and let them know that you have their back. And then finally, don't forget this coming Saturday, they're probably in your community near you within driving distance is a women's march in protest of Uh, SB-8 here in Texas, which essentially bans uh, abortions after six weeks. Um, uh, And then as well as kind of looking ahead to the Supreme Court taking on um, a big reproductive rights case uh, coming up in December.
1: Yeah. Jackson is with us on that one, too. We all need to take action there. He's excited to go to the march. All right, so a lot to do this week and every week. Um, Take your electrolytes, drink your water, and we will be back right after this incredible interview with Heather McGee to talk about our reasons for hope with Joanne Smith from the Women's March. So uh, stick around after this incredible interview for that.
2: Heather McGee is chair of the Board of Color of Change, served four years as president of the Think and Do Tank Demos, is a frequent contributor on NBC and MSNBC, and is the author of the best selling new book, The Sum of Us What Racism Costs Everyone, and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, it's great to be with you. Um, We've been so excited to have this conversation with you, but the timing is really great right now because we are in the middle of a very intense week in Congress to pass the biggest investments in our country since the New Deal. Um, Some of the policies proposed by the Biden administration specifically address racial inequities. Uh, Some tackle issues that disproportionately impact Black and Brown Americans, but a lot of it would lift up many of the people... In the places described in your book, so we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but before we jump into that, we want to get to know a little bit about you. Uh, how did you first get started as an activist, as, as an advocate, rather?
0: <laughs> um, well, I I was born on the south side of Chicago, um, and I think in many ways that. Sort of uh, now, it's more popularly known as like Michelle Obama's South Side. Right. That uses, um, that world. It's that Heather was... McGee's South Side. I'm going to give you. That. <laughs> oh, good. All going to have her flowers on the South Side. Um, you know, it was just it was a very thick working middle class Black community, and everyone had, in some way or another, you know, in my in my life, had some connective to connection to service mm. you know it was sort of the community It was just the feeling right that that even though the civil rights movement had moved on right this was mm. the 1980s um, there was still a sense that all of our hands were needed to, mm. to keep the wheel of progress moving forward for for black people and for all people who struggled it, you know it was a very um, thick union community as well um, mm. and so I think that really shaped me it also shaped me because um, I saw what happened in the sort of massive economic dislocations of the 1980s and when the, a lot of the manufacturing jobs on the South Side went away and a lot of the sort of Reagan's public service, public sector cuts trickled down to mean job losses mm. for that other big, you know, sector of employment for the black middle class. And And then, you know, as I got older, the sort of first political campaign I really, really, watched was, you know, Bill Clinton's first and second runs where, you know, by the second it was the whole conversation about what was wrong with the economy was somehow blaming like single mothers. Right. And, you know, particularly black single mothers in the sense of uh, the sort of welfare queen and the welfare mom and all of that. And it just felt so wrong and so out of touch with what I knew of, you know, the the superheroes that were black single mothers. And I think Mm. that um, disconnect and seeing, frankly, Democrats use that logic and sort of fall Mm -hmm. prey to that logic in order to win white voters. you know, I think it always stayed with me. And then I went into economic policy. I wanted to solve the big problems of our economy in the inequality era. And I and I started working at Demos. I was lucky to get an entry-level job when I was 22. And, you know, I worked on issues of debt, uh, predatory mortgage lending, credit cards, student debt, uh, jobs, taxes, wages, collective bargaining, all of these policy questions. And ultimately, in 2017, after being president of the organization for a number of years, I decided to leave, to go on this journey across the country to really figure out what race had to do with it and and if there was a better way of understanding the relationship between race and class and how racism ultimately has a cost for everyone. Because racism in our politics and our policymaking uh, leads to dysfunction, division, um, and a lack of collective action towards solving our big public problems.
1: Well, that's the perfect segue to talking about your amazing book. Um, when you were writing it, who did you first envision reading it, and um, and what what are they doing differently by the final chapter?
0: Oh, Steve, that's a like great A question right there. <laughs> <laughs> I I've, um Mariah wrote uh, it. I can't take interviews. credit for
1: that. Since you're going to give me such big props, that was Mariah's question.
0: <laughs> oh, Mariah, get your question. That's great. Um, um that's a really great question. I've done hundreds of interviews and I've not got that gotten that question. Um you know, I think in many ways it's some of the swing left activists, some of the people who um, particularly white folks who, um, you know, became radicalized around issues of race and racism by the election of Donald Trump um, and the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, but um, who really saw the issue in sort of black and white terms, right? Mm. Um, so I'm picturing um, someone like my uh, stepmother, who's white. Her, she's one of uh, nine children, and so she has lots of um, brothers and sisters, and they're all really kind of, you know, great people, right? They're good people. They're people who sort of organized their life to be good people. But even though they have are part of a blended family, they I wouldn't say that they, like, think a lot about race or, you know, didn't. I probably mm-hmm. until Donald Trump or thought about it in a very, as I said, sort of black and white way, like... Racism is bad. It's mostly interpersonal. It's bad for people of color, and you know, as long as I kind of vote the right way and 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 I'm not mean to anybody, <laughs> um, right. I, I you know, I'm part of I'm part of the the solution. And I hoped that in taking the journey through the book with me, that kind of reader would see how racism is actually far more systemic and pervasive in our politics and our policymaking than, you know, discreet videos of
2: mm-hmm. police
0: violence. And that, in fact, it's been the sort of central organizing principle of the big contest in American society, which is whether we would share the fruits of America's prosperity, with everybody who contributed to it or not, whether we would be, an, um, you know, an oligarchy, or whether we would be a country with real economic opportunity and 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 fairness. Um, and so, people who are concerned about the cost of college and um, you know their kids' school, whether it's well funded, people who are concerned about the environment, people who. Uh, lost their job in the financial crisis, people who are concerned about, you know, minimum wage work. All of these things are sort of nominally race neutral or race comes in just as a disparity story is usually the way I think people think about it. But I wanted those readers by the end of the book to see that racism was really driving inequality with Mm -hmm. impacts for everyone. And by the end, feel much more clear about how they could spot the lies being told by um, elites who want to use racist tropes to to divide us, mm. um, much more committed to the cause of racial justice from a sense that they, too, have skin in the game, mm-hmm. and much more educated to be able to be in multiracial coalitions because they know better kind of some of the basic facts about racism in our history and in our politics and our economy and can be fluent and feel comfortable um, organizing with people of color. Um, And then I also wanted this book to be for people of color who, you know, all of us have to be uh, and, you know, want to be in multiracial coalitions, whether that's at work or in our kids' PTAs or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in our activism. And sometimes it's really hard to for people of color to be in relationship and sort of right relationship with white people if we don't have a common story and a framework to make the case that these issues that impact us the most acutely also have an impact on them, um, on on white folks. And so it's really a book that I hoped would be read in groups, in multiracial groups, that Mm -hmm. it would be the basis for people Kind of being more sophisticated and smart and strategic about spotting the way that racism could undermine, you know, an activism effort or a campaign. It's something I want people reading in in schools um, to really teach critical thinking about these big themes in our history, uh, about collective action versus racial division, about spotting uh, racial demagoguing uh, as it mm-hmm. as it crops up on a daily basis. Um, yeah, that that's that's my hope for the book, and you know, it's been about nine months now since the book came out, and I, I, yeah, it's it's being used in that way in some ways. You know, always could be more, but um, I have been. I get a thrill every time I see some, you know, county book club or mm-hmm. uh, you know, library book club or community read for fresh fresh freshman students and at an HBCU and a community college, and it just really makes me feel great about the possibility of, of getting sort of on the same page with a, with a story that everyone can see themselves in. Um,
2: thank you for that. that. That's really helpful. And, you know, Steve and I always tag team the questions. He does it <laughs> way more than I do. But I really wanted to ask this specific question because I just struggle with, um, you know, this idea that if we're going to resolve racism... And the issue or or the issues that that surround it. Um, it seems unfair to ask the people who are victimized by racism to do it, black, black and brown people that mm-hmm. that doesn't seem fair because, mm-hmm. you know, we aren't responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so why would we need to do the work to to change it? But then, to your point, if, you are the type of white person who feels you're not racist and racism doesn't impact you, then where's your motivation to be part of that change. Mm-hmm. And so I think your book just does such a great job of laying out why all of us need to be part of, part of this work. Um, one of the things that you do in the book is you start out by defining the zero, zero sum theory. And, um, Many white Americans view race as a zero sum game. There's an us and them. What's good for them is bad for us. Uh, Can you talk about this?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the core ideas that I came across in my journey that was a big, you know, lit lit up a big light bulb for me, right? Mm -hmm. It was, okay, I have always wondered why it is that it feels like. We're often rooting against each other in our mm-hmm. society, right? And so you hear a proposal to fund universal childcare, and then you have some people say, "Well, why should I pay for other people's kids? And right? Like, what, what is going on? You know, <laughs> like where is this idea of the the us and them, this sort of fracture, come from?" And so I I, I kind of immerse myself in this body of research by a whole bunch of sociologists and. Political scientists who identify that there's a, a way of seeing the world that is a zero-sum worldview, where there's sort of a fixed pie of well-being. And if we mm-hmm. get a bigger slice, then the other team gets a smaller slice. A dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in somebody else's. And economically speaking, we know that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. So my background did not prepare me to understand this phenomenon because the evidence doesn't show this, right? In fact, the benefits to the larger economy, uh, and yes, even people without children of investing in universal child care, right. for example, are, you know, well-documented. Um Basically, the common sense would have it in an economy. We we want to be rooting for all of our players, right? We want everybody on the field scoring points for our team. That means better economic growth, more innovation, more industry, more jobs, all the things that make economic sense. We don't want anybody sidelined, you know, due to discrimination, disadvantage and, and debt. But There is a worldview that is a predominant one among white people and less so among people of color that says, actually, we're not all on the same team. So I'm not going to root for your success. and In fact, I'm going to be threatened by your success. And so the idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense is a really strong kind of subterranean story in American society. And in the book, I wanted to find out, well, where did this come from? Mm. Everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. Mm. And so I wanted to know who's telling white folks this story? Why Why was this story invented? And so the first chapter of the book goes back into a, a little bit of history of sort of the way that the plantation, the colonial plantation elite used this zero-sum story to, to break any potential uh, cross-racial uprisings and organizing and rebellions when you had most people uh, african indigenous and european settlers um were not benefiting from the economic model of 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 racial slavery and Mm -hmm. um so the idea was if the plantation elite could sell The Europeans on the idea that they could get just enough racial privileges to break with people who were also enslaved and in servitude, Um, then they would side with their race instead of their class, and they would Mm -hmm. sort of enforce the racial hierarchy uh, and and be okay with the class hierarchy, and so that's you know that's sort of where the the kind of template was set. And then it's been reanimated and used by self-interested elites throughout our history, this sort of demagoguing, this this cry that says, you know, blame brown people, blame black people, blame, you know, Asian Americans, blame blame your immigrant neighbor, instead of blaming the plutocracy, instead of blaming people who actually have the power to set the rules and set your wages and who are actually cheating on their taxes and... Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of been the formula. And that's why it's so important to spot it. And then the kind of flip side, the thing that was a little bit harder for me to kind of admit, was that sometimes progressives succumb to zero-sum thinking. And when we communicate about race and racism, sometimes we're we're so frustrated that we're still at like racism 101 and that there's still so much denial that exists and that we're still in this sort of colorblind ethos Mm -hmm. that we want to remind or educate white people that there is such a thing as white privilege. And, you know, there's a fierce resistance to even acknowledging that. And that's very frustrating and ridiculous if you know anything about our, our history or the current way that wealth and opportunity is structured. But because of that, when we're sort of talking about white privilege um, in a time of of broad economic insecurity, I do wonder whether or not we are sort of marketing racism to white people. It's like racism gets you, you know, better funded schools and better access to healthcare and has you free of fear of the police. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh great, I would like some of that racism. I <laughs> that <stalking laughs> racism. That racism sounds great, um, and. That's not, of course, what we mean. What we mean is that we want an end to skin color privilege not by taking away those benefits from white people, but by expanding them to everybody else. And we believe that it does not make it cheaper for you to have freedom and opportunity and dignity if other people have it, too. Right. Mm. it's that it's that zero-sum lie that is really at the core of so much of our sort of dysfunction in American society it's why we can't have nice things uh, yeah which is the line I used to open the book yeah
1: it's tr- it's so true I mean you talk about it so well in the book and and that kind of thinking as you said is weaponized by the right uh, to divide and conquer um, and it's what I guess causes so many people to vote against their own interest, or at Mm -hmm. least what they think is their interest. Um, and you've, you know, there's, I guess throughout history always been a Tucker Carlson, right. But he still has a Mm -hmm. job at Fox news, you know, spewing this, uh, this stuff. So, um, you give a really, uh, salient example of the response to this with desegregated swimming pools. Um, and it's the cover of your book too. Um, It reminds me of a spoiled and spiteful child that breaks his own toy instead of sharing it, right? (laughs) Can you talk about that and then uh, maybe give us uh, some ideas that counter that narrative that can break through that fear-mongering and race-baiting?
0: Yeah. So I'm trying to do this briefly. I mean the (laughs) um, (laughs) – It's a podcast, so we don't have to be brief. (laughs) Um. In the Sum of Us, I introduced the idea of of public goods as really the backbone of the American dream, of our nation's prosperity, of of the strong middle class that we had in the middle of the last century. And this was a public goods ethos that came out of the Great Depression, and and it was a part of the New Deal, um, and it included. Things like Social Security and a massive investment in in housing that workers could afford and and even more, the public subsidy of mortgages to allow working class people to own something uh, that would build wealth over generations and and included the GI Bill, which put a generation of returning veterans to college and Mm -hmm. into no down payment home ownership. All of these were public goods. Uh, even you could see the wage and hour laws and the co- collective bargaining laws as part of these sort of public standards and safeguards that reflected this larger ethos that said the government has a right and a responsibility to ensure a decent standard of living mm-hmm. for our people, and and the, and it worked, right? It created the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, the highest standard of living in the world in the 1950s, and and yet virtually everything I just described was segregated, racially exclusionary for whites only in one way or another. Um, and in the book I talk about public pools, um, of which we used to have nearly 2,000. These aren't like your dinky neighborhood pools. These are big, lavish, Mm -hmm. grand resort-style pools that often could hold thousands of swimmers at a time, and they were part of this kind of New Deal public goods uh, worldview, and the limitation of those public goods by race was sometimes very explicit, like in the housing market when the New Deal federal government at the same time created all these new homes and created the mortgage system and then excluded black people deliberately from that, drew maps of the entire United States and drew lines around black neighborhoods that said, you know, there's a high level Negro population here. Do not lend here, basically said to, to banks. If you lend here, you will not get a federal guarantee or a backstop will not sell you mortgage insurance, required housing developers to include racial covenants, excluding anybody who was not wholly of the Caucasian race from buying or leasing these federally subsidized new uh, housing developments in the suburbs. I mean, it was very explicit out of a never substantiated assumption that Black people would be worse credit risks. So Black people were left out of that Core public investment in wealth building and private wealth building that really was the backbone of the middle class. Um, Social Security, another public good that excluded most black workers in a compromise with Southern uh, senators, it excluded agriculture and domestic work so that only black people would still have to work until they died. Hmm. Um, you know, the GI Bill was race neutral on its face, but the public benefits were filtered through often segregated education and housing markets. So you you had this basically this asterisk on the formula that built the white middle class. Um, and so, too, were these lavish public swimming pools often racially exclusionary, either just like with a whites only sign on the fence um, or just, you know, in the north and midwest and the west often by custom and enforced by intimidation and violence at the water's edge. And so I tell the story in the book of what happened when the civil rights movement empowered Black families to basically say, you know, hey, our tax dollars have been funding those public goods too, all Mm -hmm. along. And in the case of the swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too. And so they litigated and advocated. And when desegregation orders for public swimming pools began to fall from the courts, many towns and cities across the country drained their public pools rather than integrate them. Mm -hmm. They literally drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt. In Montgomery, Alabama, I visit this beautiful park that used to have a thousand plus person swimming pool that is now just a Wide, flat expanse of grass. Mm-hmm. In Montgomery, they shut down the entire Parks and Recreation Department of the city, mm-hmm. all of the parks in the city, uh, for 10 years until 1970 mm-hmm. in order to avoid desegregation. And, you know, what that means is that racism had a cost for everyone. It meant something that used to be a public good then became a private luxury that only rich white people could afford and upper middle class white people could afford. They they joined private swim clubs and and it meant that the whole community lost out on this sort of public space where people would meet and build community and fall in love. And it was all, as you said, Steve, in this sort of spiteful sense of I I we're only gonna have public goods for the public that we deem to be good. Mm-hmm. And you know, white folks have been taught for generations by our government that there was something wrong with black people. And so, you know, for me, obviously, the the real import of the drained pool story is not um, about recreation. It's about as a it's about a metaphor to describe and explain what happened to the American dream. What happened to the sort of high taxes, high public investment, high levels of Um, sort of permission for government to act in the public interest that helped to create such prosperity um, and such a fair, so much of a fairer economy for white people. uh, And that went away as our country became more diverse and as more people of color wanted to swim too. And I I use the phrase drained pool politics to explain what happened to government funding for public colleges Government mm-hmm. used to pick up the tab for the cost of educating uh, a mostly white student-going population, and as the sort of anti-government sentiment rose among white majorities in in states, there was more desire in state legislatures for tax cuts and business subsidies than there was for funding uh, public education and public college. Um, you know, as the population became more diverse. Um, You know, in 1956 and 1960, two thirds of white people in this country believed that the government ought to guarantee a job to anyone who wanted one who couldn't find one in the private sector and guarantee a minimum level of income below which no family should fall. So we're talking about a job guarantee and a universal basic income (laughs) was popular with nearly 70% of white people in 1956 and 1960, according to um, this sort of gold standard uh, quadrennial survey. By 1964, that percentage of, of white Americans who supported a job guarantee and an income guarantee had fallen nearly in half to just 35% and was has stayed low ever since. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that, you know, you don't see that kind of decline the next time a survey is fielded, right? Like right. it was mm-hmm. just really wild. And so I, you know, had to look and say, well, what happened between 60 and 64, right? So 1963 was the March on Washington, right. which was for jobs and freedom. Uh, and where white Americans turned on their televisions and, and saw mostly black people on the yeah. mall. And two of the core demands were for a living wage and a job guarantee. Job, yeah. And then we know that 1963 was also the year that President Kennedy went on this media blitz around civil rights, firmly associating the party of the New Deal, his party, with civil rights for the first time. And then and then we know that his successor, Lyndon Johnson, would, after making good on Kennedy's promise, uh, by signing the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts into law, become the last Democrat running for president to win the majority of white voters to this Mm. day.
1: Mm.
0: You know, and that's something that, you know, I've, I've worked in progressive politics, you know, all of my career and, you know, usually alongside, you know, white progressives who, you know, have so much frustration about, our chances and why it is that we are not, you know, what we want to do for the country is so sensible, they say. You know, why why is it so hard to win when you're just promising people, like, you know, a better life right. and, a, you know, a sustainable planet? Right. And many of them don't know, um, I think because, you know, oftentimes we're, we're in our bubbles, but many of them don't know that white people used to overwhelmingly support that vision and stopped after Lyndon Johnson and the civil rights movement and that, you know, being a white progressive is a minority um, experience and that really the question of whether or not we will be that great country ever in the future um, mm-hmm. that is fair to all of its people and that, you know, lives up to our values really politically comes down to a question of whether the majority of white people will be willing to be in a multiracial coalition again. And um, it it really comes down to the question of whether the majority of white people will sign on to that vision, will embrace Mm -hmm. the idea of collective action as government of, by, and for the people, Um, will be willing to be in a multiracial coalition with a, a diverse nation. And the idea that basically you know, politics the way they've been for the past three generations since the movement has given white folks a choice to side with their class or their race. Mm. Um, and mm. and it's continued to be a choice where the racial politics have, have won out. And, you know, I think it's a very challenging thing to sit with, um, but I try to sort of tease that out in the book and just how much the kind of, anti-government spirit that we now kind of take for granted as part of the conservative and independent worldview is really something that came about after the Civil Rights Movement, after the government went from being the enforcer of the racial hierarchy Mm -hmm. to the upender of it, after the public pools became integrated.
2: Um, So let's talk a little bit about um, like policy. Today, Mm -hmm. current Mm -hmm. policy, Um, Democrats in in Congress are trying to pass Joe Biden's build back better agenda, Um, also trying to avert a government shutdown this week and extend the debt ceiling. Nancy Pelosi often says that a budget is a statement of values, and that's very evident and well illustrated in your book. Do you think the investments that the Democrats are trying to pass now Begin to address some of the inequities in our country.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I, I finished the book. Right, I wrote, you know, kind of the last small edits to it right after the election was declared, and mm. and I was not. Um, Joe Biden has all my respect, but he was not <laughs> my candidate in the primary, and I, I just didn't think that he would be this ambitious. And, mm, right. Um, I a lot of us have you know, been surprised. I didn't anticipate, yeah. you know, a, a New Deal level of public investment. You know, I opened my book saying, why can't we have nice things like universal childcare and paid family leave? And, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. like the Build Back Better agenda is a lot of nice things that yeah. our country, that any high-functioning nation should be able to do for its people to provide... Kind of the basics that people need to then be a springboard for everything else we do in life, and and so I really see this agenda, the American Jobs and Families Plan, which now rolled into the you know Build Back Better, um, you know massive infrastructure, literally you know refilling the pool of public goods, mm-hmm. um, massive infrastructure plan, both hard infrastructure and human and social infrastructure, as examples of what I call solidarity dividends. And that's this idea of gains that we can unlock, but only when we come together across lines of race and, and reject the zero-sum divide and conquer. So, you know, in the book, I tell stories of solidarity dividends at the local level of communities coming together across race to win cleaner air or to revitalize their their sort of dying mill town or to get better funded schools and 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 win... Uh, more investments in, in free college and healthcare, care. Um, but this agenda that is on the table this week is really kind of the biggest solidarity dividend that I could have imagined in some mm. ways. Um, and, you know, we're talking at a moment when poverty in the U.S. is the lowest level it's been on record because of Other solidarity dividends like the child tax credit and um, other policies like fixing unemployment insurance and more generous food stamps and all these things that just remind us that poverty is a policy choice. And I'm, on the one hand, really clear that we would not be in this place were it not for a multiracial coalition of voters who... Waded through high water to to vote in November, and then again, miraculously, in January, to give Democrats the majority, uh, and they did so with an explicit commitment to racial justice and a desire to end the pandemic and address inequality and climate. Right, that was absolutely the agenda that people were were doing so much to organize and to vote for and to reject the the entire politics of Trumpism, um, the sexism, the racism, the xenophobia, and the greed. Uh, And the dysfunction. But what is wild right now is that it's a couple of Democrats who may stop this country from doing what I think is kind of the minimum that the country needs to do to steward Mm -hmm. its resources and to be a part of fixing the problem that we are the largest contributor to. Um,
1: when you said majority, I, I wanted to say majority-ish,
0: right? <laughs> right. That's right. right. So, I mean, you know, this is a moment when everyone needs to be in contact with their representatives, even if you know that they're, you know, support the Build Back Better agenda, but just so that the entire Hall of Congress is ringing out with the clarity that this is a super popular agenda that the Democrats have to pass for our children, for our future, for our global competitiveness, for our values, um, that there is so much in here that is really needed to address the totality of racial injustice, which is not just about criminal justice reform, it's also about mm-hmm. environmental injustice and, mm-hmm. and and disproportionate lead poisoning and you know toxic pollution. It's about the need to create millions of more high-paying jobs because recall that black unemployment is still twice as high as white unemployment, and it really is in the areas that the Build Back Better agenda job creation is focused in that disproportionately impact women and people of color, um, the care economy with child care and elder care, um, new kinds of green manufacturing jobs and health care. Um, you know, this is really the moment. And I, I honestly, when I was writing the book, never could have imagined that we would so be at this crossroads where we could either refill the pool of public goods and do so in a way that creates solidarity dividends across the country, or we could continue to be divided. And if you look at the rhetoric that the corporate Democrats are using to resist the agenda, it's, you know, it's not quite the dog whistles of the right, but it's pretty close, right? It's Mm -hmm. this There should be work requirements on the child tax credit. I don't know that we need to spend this much money. A sort of like knee jerk fiscal conservatism that gives you the sort of veneer of being a sound, you know, doing this, doing it for the economy, right? right? But a few facts. One, People keep calling it a $3.5 trillion bill, and that is over 10 years. Right. So it's actually just $350 billion a year, which is half of the defense budget. Um, it's… Uh, Thank you for saying that. You know,
1: so so rarely people, I don't know why, want to talk about, you know, any spending versus what we spend on the defense budget. And I don't know why that doesn't come up
0: more, but… Thank you it doesn't come up more it doesn't people um, <laughs> I mean yeah because the elite in this country has always been able to find money to do what they want to do right right um, and so first of all it's just it's 3.5 trillion dollars over ten years second of all that represents just 1.2 percent of GDP over that time um, if the agenda passes as as the leadership wants, it includes repealing a lot of the Trump tax cuts, making sure that the billionaires who have been profiteering off the pandemic finally pay anything in taxes. And so about two thirds of it is paid for. It also includes tax cuts for working and middle class people and small businesses. So it's not actually that much spending um, in terms of, you know, it's much less than that. It's about the spending parts of it are about a 4% increase over what we currently are investing. And for all of that, you get universal fast Wi-Fi and child care and elder care and millions of good high-paying jobs and a shot at saving the planet. And... Um, you know, it's even including dental and vision in Medicare for seniors, right? I mean, there are just so many nice things in this agenda. It <laughs> seems worth a
1: 4%, you know, bump
0: in spending. Exactly. It seems pretty <laughs> worth it to me. And the yeah. idea, the sort of knee-jerk, quote-unquote, fiscal conservatism, you know, we when we own a house, we put 4% of it in, you know, in, in improvements every year, Right. Yeah. easily. Yeah. And we don't think that that's reckless spending. But this knee-jerk anti-government ethos, you know, as I discovered in, in writing The Some of Us, there's just a racial logic to it that says, you know, we don't want to invest in a diverse public. And, you know, particularly when you start to talk about, you know, women and people in poverty, it it, it is playing on this sense that somehow the people who would be the first beneficiaries for those kinds of investments are undeserving mm. and that it would cost kind of you know hard-working taxpayers cue white people um and that's just not the case right it's going to be of a benefit to the entire country and our economy and we have to do it and so i'm i'm very frustrated that this is still a debate within the democratic party mm. Because so much has been done, so much has been lost to make it just a 50-vote requirement, right? The Senate parliamentarian last week, um, Mm and I think uh, a decision that is not supported on the merits, so you know, ruling that a pathway to citizenship is not a budget-eligible policy. There's a great article um, from Cecilia Munoz about exactly why that's it's so wrong-headed. Um, but so much has been lost and traded away in order to make it fit the fifty vote threshold. And the idea mm. that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema would not go along with their party, their leadership, their home districts, um their you know, their state constituents, and you know, the overwhelming majority of Americans in supporting this agenda um, is just beyond frustrating.
1: it is it is very frustrating. Um well,, uh... We've taken so much of your amazing uh, mind and time and uh, and I, I feel like you're in our show notes because you, you went right into, you know, some of the stuff that we wanted to ask about the solidarity dividend and what we can do to work towards that as activists and volunteers. Uh, yeah. and, and you gave us some marching orders already around the Build Back Better plan and, and contacting all of our elected officials in, uh, in Congress and making sure that they know that we support it. Um, so I'll just wrap up with our final question. And if you have any other calls to action for people right now, mm-hmm. but our our final question we ask everyone is what gives you the most hope for our future?
0: Um, well, before I answer that question, I should say that, you know, um, well, it's related actually. <laughs> um. The surge in activism that has happened over the past five years where people realized, of all walks of life and and cultural backgrounds, realized that, you know, we have to do it, right? We, We have to give up our time and make it civic time. We have to talk to our friends about politics. We need to volunteer. We need to start organizations. We need to... Um, door knock and canvas and write letters and make phone calls. I mean that's just it's so inspiring. And um, the you know, the creation of, of of really focused and smart groups in the resistance to to Trump like Swing Left has just been really um, phenomenal. And my call to action would be to keep that energy up, to know that, The forces that want to keep us divided are as well-funded as they've Mm -hmm. ever been in history and have the most technologically sophisticated tools. They're attacking honest education in schools. They're hoping to scare white parents away from another integrated public good, our public school system. Mm -hmm. They're hoping to keep young people ignorant of our shared history so that, you know, they're toxic stereotypes and biases can, you know, fill the vacuum. If we don't know why the disparities exist in our society, then because we don't know our history, then we can just blame the victim and and perpetuate these stereotypes that keep us divided and keep us from seeking out common solutions to our common problems. And, you know, I think it's really important that we understand the role that racism plays in so many of the problems that we are trying to work on in society, whether it's climate change or education or income inequality and poverty wages, uh, whether it's, you know, childcare or health care or democracy and voting rights and money and politics. There's, there's a racial thread um, through all of it, and it's really about an elite using racism to divide us. And so that means that for activists who want to win on all of those fronts, we've got to be smart and sophisticated about spotting the lies, about educating our neighbors how to spot the lies, and about living our values in these multiracial coalitions that we're using um, to build power, right? It's really about the power of the many. And in this diverse nation, that many has to include someone from you know every walk of life. Mm. And so, exercising that muscle of being in community and fellowship across lines of race is, is one of the most powerful things we can do. I wrote the Some of us in order to give people a kind of shared story to work through uh, some of you know how you get there, how you create an, a strong, enduring multiracial coalition. Um, and I hope it's useful. And uh, what gives me hope is is that you know in in every corner of our country. Um, it's happening uh, in every corner of, of our country. People are stepping up and and not going back to brunch. Um, people are <laughs> still. Uh, or are having brunch f- together, maybe. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Or doing texting there, t- doing textathons at brunch. Right. Um, you know, that people are, are still are still focused on the unfinished work um, that we need to do to 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 redeem our country and to and to save the planet and to create opportunity for all of our children. Um, and that 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 gives me so much hope.
2: Well, um, Heather, what an incredible conversation and, and treat to have you on. Um, highly encourage people to read this book, um, read it with a multi-racial group of people, if you can, <laughs> uh, and talk yeah. about it. Um, thank you so much for being here with
0: us today. Thanks to both of you for everything that you do. Really appreciate it.
1: So we're here with Joanne Smith, who is Director of Programming and Operations at Women's March Actions to join us for our Reasons for Hope segment and talk about the Women's March. Joanne, thanks for being here with us.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You know, uh, there's a lot to be hopeful for. So we'll talk about that. So Mm -hmm. thanks for having me on your program.
2: Before we get into that, uh, give us an update on, on the Women's March on Saturday. I'm so excited. I'm counting down the hours.
3: I know we are too. We're excited. So... Um, You know, on October 2nd, uh, this coming Saturday, I can't believe it's already that time. (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, Well, in Los Angeles and around the country, um, women, men, everybody is invited to a big, I don't want to call it a party. I want to call it a a march, a protest um, for the draconian Texas ban on women's bodies Mm -hmm. Um, and that's exactly what it is so all the things are on our website um, womensmarchaction.com or um, womensmarchfoundation.org to get all the uh, particulars but we are ready and geared up and ready to mobilize
2: what can people I I know that a lot of our listeners have probably attended a women's march in the past what can they expect at, at this latest one
3: Oh my goodness. So I can speak for um Los Angeles. We certainly will have an uh we'll gather at 9 a.m. You know, everyone, mm-hmm. um, it's gonna be crowded. So uh get your marching shoes on, those comfortable shoes, uh tennis shoes, uh get your fanny packs ready, all the things. <laughs> fanny
1: packs are back. <laughs> yes, I they know, are.
3: So excited. <laughs> um we'll gear up about nine a.m. 10 a.m. we have uh a speaker program exciting speakers to come we got some great organizations grassroots organizations um i can't announce planned parenthood would be there um and then of course uh some elected officials you know get us all geared up and and uh excited to march and um maybe some musical guests we'll see mm-hmm. <laughs> so it'll be a great program and then we'll march um, we're excited because, um, this really is such, um, a hit, um, and a lot of people have asked us if we were sh- surprised, um, were we ready to march? No, we were not ready to march, uh, mm-hmm. at this month. We usually do our marches in January. Right. So this was very last minute, but we have an amazing team that put this all together and each chapter across the United States has done a great job of coming together because we all have the same mission, um, and that's to protect um, women's reproductive rights. So that's mm-hmm. what we're marching from.
1: And of course, as you said, it's it's not a party. Uh, you know, we are facing some very very serious issues that um, is the impetus for this march and doing it early. Uh, but uh, for anyone that's participated in a women's march. Um, It is a party atmosphere, and I'm so glad that we are able to get back to that sense of community we have standing arm in arm or maybe socially distanced walking together or or whatever, but being in community with each other to uh, fight for the issues that we care about and are so pivotal for all of us. So I'm thrilled that this is happening and and looking forward to it. Uh, We can't let you get off, though, without sharing your your reason for hope for this week.
3: Oh my goodness. So my reason for hope is the march. I was just thinking about that. And, you know, I started out as a marcher, um, you know, four or five, what, four or five years ago at this time. Yeah. And before I came to Women's March Action. And, and I remember being out there and looking around and seeing all the people. It just, There's something about the synergy and the energy of all the people around you, because sometimes it can feel very lonely, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially with uh, the last, I would say, two years, everyone being, you know, with uh, Mm -hmm. COVID right? and everyone's kind of in their own little boxes. But to look around and see other people that care about the same causes that you care about and issues that you care about, you don't feel as lonely. So that definitely gives me hope. Um, just the people that reach out. Um, of course, we always there's always gonna be hate mail, but there's um, mm-hmm. always a, that one story or two stories about um, someone celebrating, I got a message someone celebrating their 80th birthday and gonna march out with us. So it's just those kind of um, stories that you hear that give me hope and inspire me to, to continue on with what we're doing.
1: Love that. Haters gonna hate no matter what. But. <laughs> Haters gonna hate. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you so much. Um, Good luck. I know, uh, I remember um, when, you know, being here in Texas, when that horrible law passed on September, or went into effect on September 1st. And I saw the announcement that there was going to be a march on October 2nd. I was like, no. that's too far away Um, but it takes so much work to put this on Um, uh, so for all the people who show up I know there are tons of volunteers as well this is an incredible amount of work and so for you all to be able to turn it around in in a month and do it is so uh, amazing and I'm so thankful and um, I wish you the best um, on Saturday.
3: Thank you so much yes SB8 has got to go. So we're working on it. And there's actions on our website and strategies. Um, So go to womensmarchaction.com underneath our October 2nd tab, and you'll see our actions and strategies to help and, um, you know, write your congressperson and put a little pressure um, on our um, president uh, Biden as well.
1: Love it. Thank you, Joanne. Have fun on Saturday.
3: (laughs) Thank you. We will. Thank you.
1: Joanne is great. I'm excited about the Women's March. Uh, but now it's your turn, Mariah. What's your reason for hope this week?
2: Oh, I forgot. Um, we, we're <laughs> still doing this. <laughs> I got so wrapped up in Joanne. I was like, great show. See you guys next week. <laughs> right. um, my reason for hope is one of my heroes. Karen Bass is running for mayor of Los Angeles. What What? <laughs> so excited. Um uh, if you all missed our interview with Congress member Karen Bass in season one of How We Win, I urge you to go back and listen to it. She is amazing. Great. Um, Los Angeles has a, a there's a lot going on. City is not quite living up to its potential right now. A lot of crises happening. Homelessness, housing costs, covid and I think that uh, Congressmember Bass, as a mayor, would be able to, to tackle all of those things. So I'm really excited to see her, her campaign and uh, see how excited people in L.A. are to elect her mayor. Love
1: that. Yeah. I'm a fan as well, as you know. I yeah. love Karen Bass. She would be an incredible mayor. And, of course, our current mayor is leaving to be the ambassador of India.
2: Correct. So. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Garcetti out. Karen, Karen Bass. Bass in. Fingers crossed, Karen Bass you in. don't often get involved
1: um, in primaries, but this one,
2: maybe I will. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> What's your reason for hope this week, Steve?
1: Well... I'll say my reason for hope is what we've been talking about this entire episode and what we talked about with Heather McGee also, um, and that's what's going on in Congress right now and the efforts to pass this historic uh, investment in our country, Biden's Build Build Back Better plan. You try saying that, listener. Biden's Build Back Better plan. It's not that easy. Anyway, um <laughs> I'm I'm excited about it. You know, its future of, is a little uncertain right now. It's up in the air. We are watching, as we talked about uh, these votes pass or not pass, or what's going to happen with it. But I'm confident that this investment will uh, will pass in one form at one time because Democrats are uh, now have the will to make this investment uh, in in us in in the in the people of our country and, and climate and, and all the things we talked about. So uh, it's just uh, we're swinging for the fence, fences on it. And and to see uh, that kind of political will, that kind of investment happen after so many years of status quo or worse, um, It's it's hopeful. It's exciting.
2: Very exciting. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and stay engaged.
1: That's right. What's motivating you to take action right now? What's your reason for hope? We want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or tweet to us at BluesboySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven.
2: After you do that, make sure you subscribe, rate, review on Apple or wherever you get your pods, share our show on social media. Check out our page at spinlaborg slash podcast. We have some tongue twisters today. And of course, sign up to volunteer. How We Win
1: is a proud member of the MSW Media Network. Check out the other great podcasts there at mswmedia.com.
2: And then after you do all that... It'll be it'll be next Wednesday.
1: <laughs> That's right. And time for another episode.
2: <laughs> Listen how to the next win. episode. <laughs> See you then.